Father, we come and approach you this morning with songs of praise and with adoration. We also gather around to hear your voice to us. And we ask, Lord God, that you would speak, for you are not a God who is mute, but you are a God who reveals. You tell us what pleases you and what dishonors you. You make it clear to us, Lord God. I pray, Father God, that you would enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that our hearts would be changed, that we would hear what you have to say, Lord God, but we would not go about business the same way, but that we would be altered, that we would be different. Having come into the presence of the great creator of the universe and heard him speak, Father, I pray that we would not that this message would not be reduced to a mathematical formula or, or cold orthodoxy but rather lord god that the theology presented here and the doctrine that is presented would transform our hearts and cause us to be people who give praise to you and whose lives then go about reflecting the truth that you have revealed to us so have mercy upon us this day, Lord God, and we enter confidently into your presence by the blood of our, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit. Enable me, Lord God, to speak faithfully, empowered by your Spirit, unashamed, And with great conviction. So grant us favor this day for Christ's sake. Amen. And so today we continue our study in the book of Daniel. You enjoying it so far? It keeps getting better and better as we go along too. So it's a, a wonderful book. And, and one of the things we've been, we've been mentioning and one of the things we've been trying to um, highlight is these two questions that I think undergird or certainly run as a, a, a kind of a, a current underneath the whole book of Daniel. And, and, and that is, how do we live in exile? How does a person who loves the Lord live in a society that doesn't? How do we live faithfully towards the God of heaven in a culture that might embrace a wide range of deities or a wide range of beliefs who, who may have no respect for the God who has created all things. How do we do that? We've also addressed the issue then, is there a God who is worth serving? Are the pagan gods, are the gods of our culture, are they legitimate? And if not, what God is there who is legitimate to be served and to honor, to be honored? So that's kind of the uh, couple of the themes that are, are running throughout the book of, of Daniel. And I think they're really important as we get into chapter three, because chapter three of the book of Daniel may be one of the best known stories. So I, I say that perhaps I should 
put this one of the best known historical accounts. Sometimes when we say story, somebody might think of it as a fable or something, a myth, but it is an historical narrative. It is an event that occurred at some point in history. But it's one of the best known historical accounts. People who don't know God know this, know this story, know this historical account. And so when we come to chapter three, we are... We are encountering an event that many of us are familiar with. And so one of the things we hope to address today as I as I move forward, one of the things that we will look at in preview of where I hope to go today is one of the things we will see is once again, we come to a place of crisis. Now, I this is chapter three. So chapter one, we had crisis and deliverance. Remember, Daniel had a crisis of uh, making a stand for godliness in a pagan culture. So there was crisis and there was deliverance. Chapter two, crisis. The king had a dream and basically he said, I'm going to kill everybody. All of my wise guys, all of my um, my political cabinet, if you will. I'm going to kill them all unless they can not only tell me what the dream means, but they can tell me what the dream was. Crisis and deliverance. And again, in chapter three, we're going to see crisis and deliverance. So this should then remind us, perhaps, that the life in exile is one that consists of crisis. I know sometimes we think we have this idea, well, if I serve God and follow God and am faithful to God, my life will be completely smooth and without any speed bumps. And it will be really, really nice. And everything I do will be successful and prosper and it will be pleasant. Well, I pray that you serve the Lord faithfully. And I pray that your life be smooth and everything you do be prosperous and successful. I pray that that happens. But God's plans are completely different than mine. And what I have discovered is that oftentimes in life, even in faithful service, we encounter crisis. And here's the thing. It keeps coming. Satan leaves For a more opportune time. We saw this in the life of Christ. We see this in the life of the apostles. And certainly we see it in the book of Daniel. There's crisis and sometimes there's deliverance. Not always. Crisis and deliverance. But here's our... So I guess what I'm saying is that the the Christian life or the life in exile, the godly life, the life that is faithful to the God who has made everything is one where there is a where trials are normal. Trials are normal in the Christian life. But wait a second, I'm faithful to God. Trials are normal. So that's one of the things we we will begin to see. Here's another thing I hope to see and that or I hope to to communicate. And that is that we are to be faithful to the God who has made all things regardless of the consequences. So regardless of whether or not it brings trial, regardless of whether or not my 
faithfulness might bring about an undesired consequence. Yet I will be faithful to the God who has made all things. I will be faithful to the God of chapter two. Remember the God of chapter two? He is the one who made history. God is in chapter two. Isn't this the God who predicts history? Because he is a accurate forecaster of what's going to happen. God of chapter two is an accurate forecaster of what's going to happen because he is the one who causes, who creates what's going to happen. He is the creator of the future, not just the predictor of the future. And it is that God then that we are to be faithful to. He is to be our highest affection. He is to be our most lofty goal. Our greatest joy. Our most passionate passion. Regardless of whether it brings good results or perhaps what we might assume as bad results or uncomfortable results. And so that's where chapter three goes. So if you will, let's. Follow along if you'll open your Bibles to chapter 3 of Daniel. Follow along with me as we read God's Word. This is the inspired Word of God. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width, 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed to you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipes, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? 
Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up with their trousers, their coats, their caps, and other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. And this is the word of God. So let's look at what's... Let me just kind of give you the, the setup of what's going on here. First of all, I, I find the placement of this account very interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm sure probably it is chronological, um, but I do find it interesting that chapter 3 follows chapter 2. <laughs> I know that's profound, and you're all going to go home, and that's gonna, you're going to tw- tweet that, right, you know, and get on social media and say, you can't believe what my pastor said today. Amen. <laughs> chapter 3 follows chapter 2. That's profound. But, but here's the thing. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had, had, a, had a dream of, of a statue whose head was made of gold. And then, you know, his, I don't know, his midsection was, was silver and then bronze and then iron down, down at his feet. 
And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that you, O king, are the head of gold. And then after you are going to come all these other kingdoms. But here's a whole idol and the whole thing is gold. It seems to me, perhaps, this is an act of defiance. No, there will be nobody coming after me. I'm not only the head of gold, I am the whole thing of gold. I am the one and only king and I am... Nothing supersedes me. Perhaps an act of defiance saying, oh yeah? I'll show you who's king. And so following this dream of Nebuchadnezzar being a head of gold, now we see not just the statue with a head of gold, but the whole the whole statue being made of gold. Now, it's also interesting to note that right after chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar says, Oh, Daniel, your God is the great God. Your God is the God of gods. Your God is the King of kings. Your God rules over everything. Oh, your God is so majestic and so great and so wonderful. He is truly, He is everything. And then he turns around and abandons the very God that he just exclaimed. I think that this is a classic example of confession without conversion. It is one thing to speak highly of the God revealed in Scripture. It's a whole different thing to be converted. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I believe in God. I think He's a great guy. Yeah, I'm right on. It's a whole other thing to have a heart that is circumcised. It's a whole other thing to be converted. Confession is one thing. In fact, confession is part of the conversion process. But mere words do not make one a Christian. It is a heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Nebuchadnezzar spoke glowing words of Daniel's God. But then in the very next sentence, he is defying that very God. John Owens writes, and I think he puts this very well in speaking of confession without conversion. This is a rather lengthy quote, but I think he he illustrates this very well. Listen to what um, Owens says. He says, so as a traveler in his way, meeting with a violent storm of thunder and rain immediately turns out of his way to some house or tree for his shelter. But yet his This causeth him not to give over his journey so soon as the storm is over, he returns to his way and progress again. So it is with men in bondage to sin. They are in a course of pursuing their lusts. The law meets them in a storm of thunder and lightning from heaven, terrifies and hinders them in their way. This turns them for a season out of their course. They will run to prayer or amendment of life for some shelter from the storm of wrath, which is feared coming upon their consciences. But is their course stopped? Are their principles altered? Not at all. So as soon as the storm is over, so that they begin to wear out that sense and the terror that was upon them, they return to their former course in service of sin again. I mean, how many of you know people who go through crisis and all of a sudden they they get religion? All of a sudden they start reading their Bibles. They come to church and they're, they're... they're really, they, they may do that for a time, and then when the doctor says, you know what, we find no trace of the disease, or the relationship is restored, or what have you, they go back to their former course of life. 
And I think we can see this. And so for a time they exclaimed and extolled the virtues and, and, and even extolled accurately the virtues of our great God and Savior. But they were never converted. I think Nebuchadnezzar epitomizes the one who confesses but is never converted. And so Nebuchadnezzar makes this this great idol. It's large. It's huge. One of the things that I think that Daniel um, tries to highlight for us is the man-made nature of this particular idol. Do you notice the repetition of the phrase that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up over and over and over again? In fact, in the first seven verses, I think it's repeated like six times, ten times in the whole in the whole chapter, that I have set up, that was set up, that the king had set up, that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is the idol that got set up. In other words, this is a false god. And so it is totally man-made and therefore it needs to be maintained by man. False gods need to be maintained by man. And this stands in complete contrast and sharp distinction from the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who acts and lives and functions, and works on his own initiative. See, the idols that Nebuchadnezzar makes, they have eyes, but they do not see, and they have ears, but they do not hear, and they have mouths, but they do not speak. And just so that they don't totter and fall over, we need to build a big base for them. We need to build some sort of foundation upon which they stand. Otherwise, they'll tip over. But the God of heaven has eyes and he sees and he has ears and he hears and he has a mouth and he speaks and he needs no man to establish or set him up lest he topple over. And so there is this emphasis on this God that needs to be, that requires another person, a human person to establish him. And so there is now this idol, this massive idol in the plains of Dura and, uh, There is this call now for people from every tribe and tongue and nation within the empire to come. All of the bigwigs come, the sheriffs, the governors, the law enforcement, the political mucky mucks and all of the people come to the plain of Dura to worship. And we've got the best musicians. We've got horn players and lyre players and bagpipe players and and trigon. I don't know what that is. Three three-sided harp, I think. We've got all of the musicians, all of the best musicians from all of the empire. They're all here. All of the bigwigs are here. And now there is this call to worship, to fall down and worship this idol that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And just in case you think you might go your own way and do your own thing, there is the threat that if you do not fall down and worship, you will be cast into a fire, into a furnace a fire. And by the way, this probably was just off to the side. They would have need a furnace to build this idol. And so probably, and, and they have these furnaces. Archaeologists have discovered a number of these furnaces, generally cut into the side of a hill, kind of, kind of old milk bottle. Do you guys kind of remember what an old milk bottle? Kind of that shape. And so from the top, there would be the smoke coming out, maybe a little door down at the bottom, probably cut into a hillside. And so there's this furnace. It was burning. You needed it to burn because that's how you built the idol. And so there it is burning. Now, so that's off over there. 
That's your fate if you will not, along with all of the bigwigs, all of the popular people, all of the the well-known, powerful are all here and everybody is going to fall down and worship before this idol. And if you do not, there's the fire. So there is this call to worship. It is surrounded by pomp and circumstance. There is music. There is visual drama. There is this idol. There is the fire. This is a a religious event. Everybody from all levels of government have come from all tribes, not only just Babylonians, but from all tribes and tongues and nations. Everybody comes and worships and everybody is in agreement. Absolutely, this is what we're going to do. We are all going to. There are going to be three dissenters. So let me just mention then real quickly. How we. How we come to an understanding of truth. Because at this point, everybody says the truthful thing, what is true, is to worship this idol. We, we live in a day and age now, I, I don't know if it's just something modern, but I don't know how long it's been going on, but there is this idea that truth is, is determined by consensus. And we see that especially now in, the, in our political environment that we have as we Um, race towards um, electing a new president, Um, truth is determined by polls. Well, 57% of the American people believe, I got to believe that because 57, well, 57 doesn't quite convince me. If it gets to 75, I need to get on board. Or you might even hear politicians or say, well, I'm going to pass this law because after all, 75% of Americans think that this is the way we ought to go. Who can disagree with 75% of the people? After all, that's the way it is. Truth by consensus. I remember one time years ago when I was a kid, we were walking to the Arizona State Fair and we uh, were walking across the street and and I think it was against the light or something, but there, there wasn't a lot of traffic coming. But, but somebody started walking and everybody started walking. And, I, and somebody said, well, I hope this is safe. It's like, well, everybody's doing it, and so it must be okay. And somebody spoke up, kind of, either that or it's going to be a tragedy. <laughs> I just stuck with it. I was probably 15 years old, you know, and we'd go to the state fair. And it's like, well, either we all go along with the crowd, and we're either going to be safe or it's going to be a, a, an utter tragedy. Truth by consensus ends up being another tragedy because truth is not determined by a poll or by who, how many people believe it, but by what is revealed in the word of God. We believe that truth is revealed by God himself. That truth is, is encapsulated in what we call the Holy Bible, 66 books. Old Testament and New Testament, that is the truth of God. And what the truth of God says, regardless of how many Americans or how many worldwide agree with it, that's not the issue. Here the issue was, do I bow down and worship a false god with everybody else? After all, look, everybody's doing it and I'm going to save my life. Who wants to be in the fire and look at all of the popular people? They can't all be wrong. Oh, yes, they can. That would be the tragedy. They could all be wrong. And three men 
said, wait a second. We will not be swayed by consensus. We will be swayed by the word of God and do what God has revealed. This certainly reminds me of what we read over in the book of Revelation in chapter 13, verse 4. And they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. They worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Everybody, the majority, falls down and worships the beast. But there are three men who for them there is no other God but Yahweh. And they will not compromise. Now any Hebrew who is reading this, and probably most of you when you read this, you realize right away what's going on. You realize right away, wait a second, there is a clear violation of commandment one and two. And that is obvious. Commandments 1 and 2. Well, let me give you the prologue, as I, I think, the, or the, um, the prelude to the, the Ten Commandments, because I, I, I think we, it, it is imperative to understand the prelude um, and not ignore it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You will have no other gods beside me, and you will not bow down and worship them. Commandment number 1, commandment number 2, preceded by the prologue. The prologue, I'm the God who delivered you. I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of the house of slavery. And if you will allow me just a little bit of latitude here, therefore, you will have no other gods before me. Why will you have no other gods before me? Because I'm the one who delivered you. Who is the God who saved you? Is it some golden idol in the plain of Dura? Or is it the God of heaven who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins? Therefore, you will have no other gods. You will not bow down to them and you will not worship them. And these three men said, wait a second. I see what everybody's doing. And 97% of the population says we can bow down and worship that God so that we not get thrown into the flaming pit of fire. But wait a second. My God, the one who delivered my forefathers out of the house of bondage, out of the house of, of, of Egypt, said we will have no other gods. Yeah, that happened a long time ago. Yeah, it was years ago. But yes, it is still relevant for us today. God's word has not waned and it has not been diluted one bit. And so we will not do what the consensus or what the majority is doing. We will follow God. If it's in the majority, great. If it's in the minority, whatever. We will follow what God says. And so that's what we're going to do. And so truth, then, is not altered by consensus, nor is truth altered by consequences. They knew good and well what the consequences were. They could have easily said, well, you know what, we can kind of just do this, and it doesn't really mean anything to us. No, we will not do this, because I don't care what the consequences are. There comes a point in time where culture, where Belief systems collide, and that's what's going on here. There's this collision of belief systems. And for a while, these three men could live their lives in exile without conflict with the regime. But there came a point in time where the ideology 
of Babylon, the ideology of the world and the ideology of following Yahweh came into conflict. Folks, I want you to understand that the Christian life is one that will eventually come into conflict with the society and the culture we live in. It just has to because they are so completely different. The Christian faith says that we have sinned against a holy God and that is anathema to a culture today saying, I don't think I'm a sinner. I think one of the guys running for president said, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I'm not a sinner. And to tell somebody that you have sinned against a holy God is probably the height of intolerance. And intolerance is the one unforgivable sin in our culture today. And eventually, that very worldview is going to collide with the cultural view that says, listen, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody. And that's a whole other discussion. And as long as you're sincere and as long as whatever, and eventually our worldview will collide with the worldview of our culture. And we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus says, don't be surprised if they hate you. They hated me first. That's right. They actually hated Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who had done absolutely nothing wrong ever. He gave no reason for hatred, and they hated him anyways. Why? Because his system, the truth, collided with theirs. He called them out and he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the Messiah. I will give my life and I will die for your sins. And people say, oh, I don't like it. No, if I like that idea. And so these belief systems collide. God is our source of truth. And Nebuchadnezzar's command is a clear violation of God's command. And we should not be surprised when the word of God and the word of man collide with one another. It's inevitable. And in our society in America, for quite some time, we could have a biblical worldview and it was fairly safe. People said, oh, yeah, you know what? Ten Commandments, those are good. Now to hold a biblical worldview is to be an intolerant bigot. And not only that, but you should be eliminated. Guys like Richard Dawkins, who's one of these new atheists, and he's written a number of books, popular, best-selling author, very influential. He believes that we are viruses that need to be eliminated. He has said so. That's what he said. Viruses that need to be eliminated. So I'm not just making this, and this isn't some fringe character. This is a mainstream author who sold millions and millions and millions of books. He is asked to speak. He's a great speaker. I've enjoyed listening to him. I disagree with everything he says. But he's an engaging guy. You need to be eliminated. And so the word of God and the word of man ultimately collide. And for a while, Nebuchadnezzar was pretty good. He exalted or, you know, promoted Daniel and everything was going good. But eventually, uh, the word of God and the word of man will collide. And when they do, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? When Jesus said, you will eat my flesh and drink my blood, everybody left. What were the words of the disciples? 
when he says, where are you going? Are you going to go also? Where would we go? Only you have the words of life. Are you going to leave? Or are you going to say, I don't know where else I'm going to go because only God has the words of life. That's the only place I can stay. I can stay here regardless of the flaming furnace over there. And Nebuchadnezzar asked this question. What God is there who can deliver from my hands? What God is there? This was the same question that was asked of the beast. Who, look at how powerful he is. Who can deliver from the beast? It's a great question. It's a simple answer. And so the question before us now is this. Will the image of God bow down to the image of man? That's our question. Will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, men created in the image of God, will they bow down to this image created in in the image of man? That's the question. That's our question. Will us, will we, created in the image of God, bow down to the image of men? That's, what, that's what's before us. And so here we are. And these are three steadfast men. And they are p- confident in God's power to deliver. Oh, king, we're not going to bow down. Here's the thing. Our God's able to deliver. Our God is powerful. Our God is the one who delivered our forefathers across the, the Um, The Red Sea. Our God is the one who enabled them to walk on dry ground. Our God is the one who chased out enemies. Our God is the one who does all of these things. That's our God. Mighty in battle and able to deliver. That's our God. But even if he doesn't, here's what we know. Our God is powerful. He's able to do, he creates the universe by speaking it. That's our God. He is able and powerful to do this. But here's what they are. They are also submissive to God's will. But even if he doesn't, O king, our God is able, but I'm not about to presume to tell you or to command that God has to do something or act or behave a certain way. We have sometimes, I believe, reduced God down to a vending machine. I put in a certain amount of money or I put in a certain um, configuration and out pops what I expect. Well, if I pray this and I do it this way, then out will pop a certain result. That is not our God. (coughs) Jesus describes the Holy Spirit this way. He's like wind. You don't know where he's coming from or where he's going. You Feel the effects, but you have no idea where where it's coming from or where it's going. That's the Holy Spirit. That's our God. There are certain things that our God is and does. But you do not command God and say, well, I've done such and such this way, so therefore you must act in that way. They realize that God's will may be different from their will. So let me ask you this. Are you willing to have and to serve a God whose will may be different than yours. You have plans, you have desires, you have uh, objectives or a trajectory. What if God had a different will for your life than what you are planning? Would you still serve him? Would he still be God of your life? What if God's will for your life is something that is uncomfortable or unpleasant? Will you still serve him? You may say, well, I believe that God can deliver me. I believe that too. Make no mistake, I believe in the miracle-working God that is clear in Scripture. I believe that 100%. 
I just don't presume to say that I'm going to demand of God to do things a certain way. Can God deliver? Can God heal? Absolutely. But I don't know what God's will is for every situation and every aspect of life. And I will serve God no matter what. So are you willing to have God's will be different than yours? What if God's will has you never getting married? Remaining single the rest of your life. What if that's God's will for you? Would you say, well, then I don't want to have anything to do with God like that. What if God's will is to never give you any financial security or no children or a mess of children? (laughs) I didn't plan on this. That's not what I bargained for. See, these three men have faith in God, not faith in deliverance. The object of their worship is God, not God delivering them. So I want to assure you that faith is not, con- is not contingent upon a pleasant outcome. And that's very um, different from what we're taught, especially by some very well-known um, speakers that, you know, if you give $10, God's going to give you $100, right? And if I pray a certain way, then God will assure me of a certain outcome. And that if I'm, if I'm a good, nice, happy person, then I'm guaranteed success in my job and my boss is going to love me. And if I, um, and if I just wait for the right person to come along and I live in a certain way, then um, God is going to bring me the right companion for the rest of my life. That's what we're taught. But it's not Biblical. We give because God has called us to give. It is it's not a financial scheme. Would you be faithful to giving if, A, God never promised to give you anything back? Or there was no tax write-off? Will we be faithful to the things of God because He is the object of our worship? See, is God worth our loyalty only if we're successful? Is God worth our loyalty only when we're healthy, only when we're popular, or only when we're comfortable? And I would say, no, God is worthy of our loyalty no matter what. He's worthy of our loyalty in the flaming fire. That's where He's worthy of our loyalty. He's worthy of our loyalty when we're successful. So if God brings you success, be loyal to Him. I think more people are drift away from God in their success than they do in their want. I have no objective evidence for that, just an observation. See, these three men understood that God was the object of their affections, not what God could do for them. Is God your highest affection? Not what God can do for you. So many people and so many times we've evangelized, this is what God's going to do for you. He's going to do all of these great things for you. And we have sold them a bill of goods, but God is God. And he will save you from your sins. That I can promise you. Through Jesus Christ, he will save you from your sins. And you will have eternal life with him. That I know. See? So, for these three men, death in the flames was not evidence of failure of faith. Sometimes we think when bad things happen, it's because I didn't have enough faith. 
Let me read you from Hebrews chapter 11. Because I think this, this incident is mentioned here. Verse 34 and 35. Who by faith quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Amen. We love that verse. Let me keep going. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better promise. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Is God able to deliver? Yes, He is able to bring people back from the dead. Yes, He is able to do all of those things. And yes, He may say, you will be sawn in two. You will be cast into the fiery furnace. And you will not survive. What is most valuable? So this next section, I better hustle a little bit here. This next section is an answer to, to um, um, Nebuchadnezzar's Question, what God is there to who can deliver you from my hands? Here's the answer. The God of, A, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What God can deliver? The only God there is. All others are man-made. Faithfulness to this God appears to be leading them to the flames. They heated up the flames seven times their normal thing. I, 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 so it's really hot. And Nebuchadnezzar gets his really strong, well-trained soldiers, kind of the special ops, to throw these guys into the fire. Uh, I find it interesting because they end up dying. I've talked about God invading Babylon in the past. I think he just took out their special ops. So train them as much as you want. I'll take them out. Takes them out. And, and they threw them into the fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar is going, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Didn't we throw three guys in the fire? Oh, yeah. He threw three guys in the fire. Meshach, Abednego, and Shadrach. Well, then why are there four? I see four men walking around in there. And one, the fourth one, looks like the son of, a, of the gods. And they're walking around. It's almost like they're kind of just like hanging out. Like, hey, how's it going? Kind of like you and I would at a picnic out underneath a shady tree. What's going on? Oh, it's really nice. And I see this. So obviously the question is, who is this fourth individual? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. Um, some people say it's pre-incarnate Christ. I'm very reluctant to say that. It's possible. I personally have problems with the incarnation happening before the incarnation. So just my own personal biblical bias. Um, and I know he said, like what, son of the gods, but please don't read New Testament um, titles into the Old Testament. Um, that's just bad interpretation. Um, so it could be. It could be. I, I, I wouldn't discount that. But then he says he sent his angel. So perhaps an angel. the bottom line is this. God sent a deliverer to deliver his people out of the flames. I don't know who it is. doesn't matter. God sent a deliverer to deliver his people out of the flames. Remember this. 
God said, even though you, I walk through, or David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Even in the flaming fire, you're with me. Even when I walk through death, you are with me. And here's the bottom line is this, is God will be with his people always, always. You say, well, what if I die? Here's the thing. God will be with you in death. And the second you breathe your last breath, he will walk you into his glorious presence. If you are a follower of his, he will not abandon you in death. Do you think for a moment that God now says, oh, you're beyond my reach now. You're dead. I can't do anything. No, at that moment, I will walk you across the threshold into my glorious kingdom and I will introduce you to my heavenly father. That's what I'm going to do. I won't abandon you there. That's where I'm going to deliver you. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even in death, God will not abandon his people. And so, we need to believe that God will take care of us. And that knowing that God will take care of us, we can move forward serving him with confidence. Why will you fear? When I say, oh, well, I, I need to share my faith, but I wonder if that guy's going to ridicule me. If God is never going to abandon me, then why should I fear what this person's going to say or do? Or I'm going to stand up and do something uh, and live my life for Christ, even though my boss has a problem. And I'm not talking about being obnoxious and following reasonable rules. If your boss says, I don't want you evangelizing at work, maybe you shouldn't evangelize at work. How long do you work? Eight hours? That gives you, what, 16 other hours. Evangelize. Just because he says you can't evangelize at work doesn't mean you can't evangelize. Whoever said that? You can still share the gospel. You can sh- so God has called us. If God is always going to be with us, then we don't need to worry about how we serve him. I mean, we don't need to worry about serving him. We can serve him faithfully, knowing that he will always be with us. And so then we get to Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. And his first one is one of praise. Oh, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants. Oh, what a great God. Here he is again. Confession. Please don't think there's a bit of conversion here. Oh, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And notice what he says. He says, anybody who speaks bad about their God. I'm not saying we're going to change our, 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 uh, our belief system. Just don't say anything bad about their God. And if you don't say anything bad about their God, you're okay. We're going to just keep our gods. So doxology, first of all, he praises God. And then he, he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, don't offend. I, I think he's hedging his bets. He's seen how powerful the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is. And he's the guy who tried to kill him. So he's now trying to, you know, kind of appease. Oh, I kind of made a mistake. That God's really powerful. Let me kind of try to be good to his servants and maybe he'll not be mean to me. Well, I'll close with this. We are people who are living in exile. This is evidence from the New Testament. We are living in exile. Priority needs to be given to God's revealed truth. God has already told us how we are to live. And we are to be faithful to the God who has called us. If you have never followed Christ by believing in him, calling upon his name, repenting of your sins, being baptized, 
and walking in the life that Christ has given you, this would be a great day for that. Let me tell you this. You will become an exile. You'll no longer be a citizen of this world. You'll be a citizen of the kingdom. You'll be living in this world, but your home, your your heart will be somewhere else. But I would invite you to come and speak with me. Really speak to just about anybody in here who loves the Lord. would love to talk with you about how, what it means to be a follower of Christ. We believe that because it's been revealed clearly in Scripture. We believe that we need to be faithful to what God has called us to do and that God needs to be the object of our affections, that God is the ultimate prize. And we serve the God revealed in Scripture, not only in this life, but we will serve him in death as well. Some, some of us will die peacefully and quietly, others not so much. But regardless, we will serve him regardless of where he takes us. Because here's the thing, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and on that day when you cross over, he will be there and he will introduce you to his kingdom and you will be his forever. Let's stand, let's pray. Our gracious Father, there truly is none like you. I don't know what it is to be threatened with physical harm like this for serving you. I have no idea. Never been there. Ridicule, perhaps. Mockings, yeah. Lord, I've shrunk in those, in those times, many times. I've shrunk back. I've held my tongue. Maybe not been as bold as I ought to have been. Have mercy, Lord God. I pray that I'm not obnoxious or that I'm not offensive, but the gospel is offensive. Let, me, let us be faithful to the gospel, to share it, to proclaim it, to declare it, to stand upon it, to believe and know that Jesus Christ alone is Lord of all. What have we to fear? Should we fear men who can kill the body, but after that have nothing? Or should we fear God? after the body is dead, can cast the soul into hell. Oh, Lord, we come before you and thank you, Lord, that you are merciful towards us. Help us, Father God, to live in this exile with great faithfulness, for you truly are the true God and worthy of all praise. Amen.